Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. I did it again. I was just like kind of on my, in my own world. I was like, oh, wait. I'm supposed to say something? Cool, cool, cool. She's looking at socks, everybody. She's looking at socks. Socks are nice. They are nice. And today, as we record this, is your birthday. It is my birthday. Happy birthday. thank you. Give me some socks. (laughs) Give me some socks (laughs) and some money, right? Oh, come on now. Yes. Kind of related. Please tell me how to keep my money. (laughs) Were you good with money? I am not good with money. I've gotten better as I've gotten older. For sure. Mm-hmm. And then also, um, as we talked about, I'm not sure many people experience, I live pay to, paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. And so, because I didn't make, honestly, enough to live in Atlanta. So, right. and I'm sure a lot of people experience that, which is why people, millennials have been living with their parents, because it's hard. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I'm not really great with it. But as I've gotten older, I've gotten a little more sense in understanding the fallout of debt and all of that. So, getting better, not great. What about you? Improving. Um, I would say I'm pretty good. Oh. Yeah. I, uh, when I was a kid, I mean, starting like four or five, every birthday, every holiday, I just saved money. I had a little little bank. You did save that Easter money for a very long time. I saved my Easter money, my Christmas money, my birthday money. Um, I was chosen to do that. Did, you, did your school, your elementary school, have that little bank where students could like invest? No. Well, I was the bank, the owner. What? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was really good at uh, strategies for saving money okay. in fourth grade. Okay. Very important. And I think everyone knows I had my empire of CD, mixed CDs. Oh, that's right. Your little um, underground business. <laughs> underground business. In high school. So I left with a lot, um, a couple thousand dollars from high school wow. saved. And then here in Georgia, we were talking about this yesterday, I chose the school I did, the college I did, because of something called the HOPE Scholarship, right. which essentially if you keep a certain GPA, um, the state funded by lottery money right. pays for your tuition. And some book, some for some books, right. but not a lot. Well, I'm a lot older than you, and they provided a little more for me than I think they do. And then the requirements were a little less intense mm-hmm. um, because I was at the beginning of the program, essentially. Mm-hmm. Not quite beginning. Towards the beginning. <laughs> not going to take myself that old. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I did the same thing because I couldn't go to college without yeah. doing that, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And it was really nice. It was really, I feel really fortunate now because I have so many friends struggling with student debt and right. I left unscathed. Right. Um, and I, from the television show, which is having quite a moment right now, Friends, I learned. Yeah, what is that? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, like, why is that picking back up? So weird. I don't anyway, know. Keep going. It's Netflix and I don't know. But um, there's a line in it from like the season two or three, very early on, where Monica's dad says, What are you, 10% of your paycheck, where does it go? And she says, kind of feebly, in the bank. <laughs> but I thought that was like a thing. And so 10% of my paycheck for as long as I've Which been is, paid. Yeah, that's ridiculously smart. And I still, nah. I just set it up automatically. Wow. Um, so I think I'm pretty good. And also, I know Bridget and I, when we did an episode on pay transparency, we were talking about how this weirdness we have about discussing money and salary. Um, I would say in general in the United States, everybody, but mm-hmm. also kind of particularly women. Right. Um, 
And I've never had that, and I feel really fortunate because my group of friends, we were all about it. Like, how much are you making? You should be making more. Right. Here's how you do it. Right. I think I'm the same way because it doesn't make sense to yeah. me. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I need a baseline. Right. Like it's, <laughs> so I need someone to tell me, am I being screwed over? Or am I doing this right? Right. The value of having someone who just be open with you. Right. Um, you can't underestimate it. And it's been something that has helped me and has helped me negotiate and get hopefully the most of what I can. Um, and just learning from other women in my life and having that thing of like, go back and negotiate your salary and all that. Right. Uh, and that's something that Samantha and I have been talking about a lot lately with some of our other coworkers and friends. So this has been on our mind. And it is also on the mind of Samantha Berry, who is editor-in-chief of Glamour Money Matters, who is starting her own podcast called She Makes Money Moves, um, which we wanted to highlight because we think that some of you listeners would really appreciate it. And also, if you're someone who has struggled with having these open conversations with money, um, that's something that she looks into, um, how much we make, how much we spend, how we're investing, and how it can impact so many other aspects of our lives. And we've all seen that. We've had, we've been that friend or we've had that friend who can't do stuff right? because they don't have the funds. Right. And like I said, just living paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. And then it's not necessarily because I'm really bad with it, but because it all goes to bills very quickly. So yeah. Yeah. yeah and in this podcast, um, Samantha Berry, another Samantha, yes. <laughs> uh, she shares her, her own experiences and her own journey. And gives advice from experts and the hope being that women who listen to it can can learn from that and build on that. And um, that's something that we're very big on too. Right. As well as the fact that we know that women make less than men. Yep. And so how do you balance that scale a little bit? Yeah. And hopefully, I mean, if we share, if we more and more share, wait, wait, you're making how much? Right. Then we can push we can push the scale slowly but surely. We can do this. <laughs> we can do this. So if that's something you're interested in, go check out the podcast, the new podcast, She Makes Money Moves, wherever you hear your podcast. And in the meantime, we hope you enjoy this classic episode about salaries and secrets Ooh. of salaries. Ooh. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're talking to two super rad ladies, Gina Helfrick and Ashley Doyle, who we met face-to-face at South by Southwest Interactive, and it was kismet. Oh, my God. It was amazing. So here's the backstory really briefly. Gina emailed us, and uh, thank God she did. I'm so excited to talk to them. And I was so excited to talk to them at South by Southwest. But the thing is, when Kristen and I were at South by, like, there's so much going on. You're running to a million places. We hosted our own live show and panel. There was just a lot of stuff going on. And Gina was kind enough, conscientious enough, and efficient and type A enough to email me again to make sure that we got together. And I'm so happy she did. Yeah. And uh, since we haven't even mentioned what this Gina and Ashley dynamic (laughs) duo do, um, they have started 
a woman-owned, full-service recruiting firm called Recruit Her, which is committed to connecting tech companies with diverse talent. And in our conversation, we're going to get into all of the reasons why this service is very necessary and important, not only for companies' bottom lines, but also for the technology and services that trickle down to end users like you and me. Yeah, and in talking with them for this interview and when we met them a little while back in person, it was so fascinating and inspiring to hear their sort of boots-on-the-ground perspective about diversity in tech, both diversity of gender and diversity of ethnicity. They're really passionate about improving the diversity of teams in tech Because, honestly, diverse teams outperform those who just look like one group. And beyond the inspiration of their mission, it's also just inspiring to hear their own story of how they found each other and what brought them to building this startup, which has taken off in a really short amount of time. And so what we're going to talk about with Gina and Ashley today includes, yes, why diversity is important and go beyond the buzzwordy, almost tokenism aspects of diversity. Right. But also, too, we are going to drill down into some really personal issues when it comes to women and our jobs and our paychecks and transitioning into better jobs where we're treated better. And also this issue of salary transparency, which is blowing up right now among tech companies. Yeah, I mean, speaking of buzzwordy, pay transparency is a huge issue right now. People in all sorts of industries are talking about it. And for the most part, largely, it is touted as a positive step towards eliminating the gender wage gap, toward making sure that people, no matter their gender, race, background, whatever, are paid equitably for the jobs that they're doing. And it's also free advertising in a way. I mean, it's not entirely free because you have to pay probably some people more in their day-to-day jobs, but it's free advertising for recruiting and then also retaining solid talent. Um, And you're now seeing more and more companies like Amazon and Salesforce and most recently Facebook analyzing gender wage gaps within the company and rectifying that. And so it's exciting to know that this is something that um, these leading tech companies are taking really seriously. And this is a conversation that is spreading because, Caroline, I think it's really time for us to stop feeling so secretive about our salaries. Yeah, Exactly. And and that is something that both Ashley and Gina are passionate about. And it's something that the conversation is only going to get louder as companies of all stripes diversify more and more, as more people of different backgrounds are brought into companies. Salary discrepancies are going to be an issue. And pay transparency is a huge way to combat that. And it's also an important step in normalizing this Thing that we've been conditioned to consider impolite of talking about what you make, finding out how much your coworkers make, and comparing notes a little bit. Because the fact of the matter is, when it comes to especially women and even more so women of color, 
our we'll never know how much we aren't being paid if we don't know how much people around us are making. So should we talk now to Gina and Ashley? Yes, let's do it. So Gina and Ashley, before we get into the nitty gritty about salary and money talk and all that fun and sometimes not so fun stuff, can you tell our audience a little bit about what both of you do and also how Recruit Her came to be and how it works? Yeah, um, this is Gina. I co-founded Recruit Her with Ashley last August, so um, late summer 2015. I had prior to that um, worked in a startup in the tech industry here in Austin. And before that, I was directing the Women's Center at Harvard. So um, I was looking for something new to do professionally as kind of in the career transition. And I um, felt like, you know, what I really want to do is to combine these passions of mine and to draw on my background in gender and women's studies and diversity and inclusion work um, from within higher ed and bring that expertise to the tech industry, which is having a lot of challenges and great opportunities around um, diversity and inclusion issues. So I was looking at that mostly from a consulting perspective, and I had lots and lots of people ask me if I was also going to provide candidates for companies that I would consult for. And I was like, well, I don't know anything about that. So I should probably find someone who does. And that was how I met Ashley. (laughs) Yeah. uh, And it was really uh, great timing. I feel like I'm really lucky that I saw Gina's post when I did. So um, we're both based here in Austin. This is Ashley Doyle, by the way. So I'm obviously the other co-founder of Recruit Her. Um, We're um, both based here in Austin. We didn't know each other, but there's this really wonderful Facebook group called Austin Digital Jobs. It has like you know, close to 20,000 people in it now. And Gina was one of those 20,000 people who posted, hey, I'd like to talk to a recruiter about um, like how you consider getting more diverse applicants into the pool if you have 30 minutes or something to talk with me. And I was the only person who answered. <laughs> so um, that's how we met and really uh, hit it off on that first call, although maybe we can talk later about how awkward it was, um, around the topic of salary negotiation yes. and um, fighting for your market worth. Um, in any case, my background um, before uh, launching Recruit Her was primarily in technical recruitment um, in larger corporations. So I've been working in tech for about eight years doing technical recruiting and sourcing and have also um, been an HR manager for those same companies. And so um, really the bulk of my work has always been focused around recruiting, retention, compensation and benefits and um uh, yeah, I, I we launched Recruit Her in August of last year, and uh, here we are now. We built this thing. It's very exciting. 
Yeah, so um, what we can tell you about what Recruiter does is we're a diversity recruitment firm. We're focused on the tech industry. What that means is we provide a more diverse set of candidates to our client companies for their open roles than they're typically going to get if they work with a traditional recruiting agency. Um, we also are committed to only working for client companies who we believe are providing an inclusive environment for our candidates. So we pre-screen all of the companies that we ultimately decide to recruit for to see what life is like. Do they have a salary transparency at their company? Um, and make sure it's a place that uh, we feel comfortable sending someone where they can grow and thrive um, and make sure that they don't just have an experience where they get spit right back out. So we're really hyper-conscious about the ecosystem of issues that are contributing to the current lack of diversity in tech and trying to make sure that we conduct our business in a way that is long-term going to continue to help fix the problem. Well, I mean, that's an amazing effort and an amazing goal, but what do you say to those people out there who just claim that efforts like this around diversity are just tokenism and we don't really need to do this. We're just hiring the best people for the job, whoever that is. Uh, uh, <laughs> man, I, you know, we would be super duper rich at this point if we got a dollar every time someone said that legitimately yeah. to us on the phone. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, I hear it, right? Like I get the eyebrow raise. Uh, and the skepticism, especially this year, which it's like pro-con, right? Finally, finally, uh, wage inequity, diversity in tech or the lack thereof is, is a part of the national conversation. And that's something that we are super excited about because it's not a new problem, certainly. Um, it's just finally one that, like, you know, you can talk to someone at Starbucks about because people now know this is a thing that happens and that lots of people are working uh, to try to figure out how to address. Um, the con to that is, like, sometimes you get the eye roll, right? Like, great, diversity, tell me something I don't know. Like, I just hire the best person for the job. I don't care what you look like. I just want to see your resume. Um, unfortunately, that sort of sentiment uh, doesn't work in the actual real world. Um, and we know because of, you know, years and years and years of research and practical experience that we're not able to look at a resume or sit in an interview room with a, a candidate and make completely unbiased judgments about that person. That's just not the way our brains work. So, um, we believe there are tons and tons of strategies that you can employ as an employer, as a person who's um, interviewing another person for your company. Um, even if you are just the first person reviewing resumes for um, you know, new applicants rolling in, there are lots of ways that you can sort of mitigate that bias that naturally exists for all of us as humans and make sure that your hiring processes are set up to really, truly hire the best person for the job. And frankly, if you only rely on the same like hiring practices you've always used forever and you have a homogenous team already, you cannot expect that the applicant pool you're drawing in without trying is going to change. Like, if your existing team is homogenous and you rely on employee referrals to get new candidates coming in and you don't ever like actively engage with communities outside of the ones you're part of, you're pretty much always going to be hiring the same people and thinking that those are the best people for the job because you haven't looked beyond your, you know, your the limited bubble, which is sometimes a really nice bubble, but there's a lot of talent outside of that, uh, outside of that realm. 
So one thing I've also been noticing in terms of diversity issues within tech is, A, we've started talking beyond just gender gaps, but also looking at um, ethnicity, too, which I think is a really great uh, step forward. But on the flip side of that, too, I think that we are, or I don't know, maybe I'm just in like my own Twitter bubble, but we're seeing not only uh, identification of the problem, but also why diversity is a solution in tech. So I was wondering if you could just kind of quickly talk about why this is a benefit for the bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, there are lots and lots of research out there making effectively the business case for diversity. Um, but there's a couple examples that we talk about a lot. So um, if you'll remember when Apple rolled out uh, one of their more recent iOS updates that included the Apple Health app, um, that app was native on your phone. If you had an Apple phone, you had the app. And you could use this to track your sleep, um, how much you weigh, your sodium intake, any medicines that you might have. You could track pretty much any little detail that you could dream up having to do with your body and biology. But you couldn't track your period. Which is something that women, you would know, like, oh, great, a health app. Like, I would love to use this. What's the most fundamental thing I might want to track here, right? And it was not even a capability. So having a diverse team developing your products and tech is really important simply for connecting with your customer base, right? That's 50% of their customer base that they just completely let down through that feature, Um, So since then, they have made the update. You can now track your period in Apple Health. (laughs) Um, And there's lots of other apps that also came out uh, to help women, you know, keep track of their fertility as well. So it's a huge market. Um, I think the notion that there are uh, heterogeneous customers and markets out there uh, that you can't tap unless you have a team that reflects those experiences and perspectives is really strong, right? relates to the bottom line. Um, There's a new company out there right now called Bevel that is just crushing it. Um, They have basically like shaving products for curly-haired men that don't tear up their face when they're actually shaving because it's designed for that particular hair type. And they're in Target now. They're making so much money. And it's just because nobody actually decided to pay attention to the particular needs of this market before. So really, you know, diversity, having a diverse team, I think plenty of us out there just think it's the right thing to do, right? We're really uncomfortable with a very homogenous looking tech industry, given how tech is increasingly, you know, creeping into every aspect of our lives. And soon every industry will be the tech industry. Um, also, it's relevant for where people want to work. Diverse teams uh, tend to have longer retention of employees. People are happier working on diverse teams, really. And then the bottom line, right? Like when you have teams that reflect your customer base, you're better able to connect with their needs, you're better better able to build products that can really serve many, many people's wants and needs. So So once we have that diversity piece in place, then there's the question of, you know, salary equity, because there was recently research that came out, and I I don't remember the exact source, but it found that in traditionally male-dominated fields, like, say, a tech company, when women come into those jobs and 
uh, it transitions from being male-dominated to more female-dominated, the overall income drops. The overall, you know, compensation drops. So... (laughs) Yeah, this was a New York Times article recently. Yeah, so let's talk about that and how how do you, you know, kind of like make that bridge to like get people in the door, but also maintain pay equity? We will say, obviously, uh, for us, we think salary transparency is a critical like way to make sure that doesn't happen, right? Because that way, no matter what the circumstances are around the demographic makeup of your team, how large your team is, how uh, your team changes over time, if you have committed to having more transparency around the way you compensate your employees and how that compensation changes over time, you can make sure that that doesn't happen, right? Um, There's this resistance for sure, I think, from employers to dig into this stuff? Well, we know, for example, that uh, Google and Apple used to have this kind of secret, you know, non-compete where they wouldn't uh, poach one another's employees. And partly that was to keep costs down, right? So in a sense, there can be an antagonistic relationship between companies and their employees because companies know the premium, particularly on tech talent, which is our field, and so if those employees learn their actual worth, companies are going to have to pay more. Well, I guess how does that apply, do you think, in a more general sense, beyond just Google not wanting to have an adversarial relationship? How do you think that applies more to the gender aspect, especially when it comes to whether it's like official policy in the company or just unofficial etiquette about not speaking about your salary? Sure. I think some of this plays into the idea that, uh, you know, women are supposed to be polite, right? We're taught early on that you don't, you don't want to enter into conversations that are going to make other people uncomfortable. You know, there's the whole, like, don't talk about religion or politics at the dinner table. Salary is part of that, right? It's sort of ingrained in us that this is not something that you should be talking about with your peers or with your coworkers. And frankly, you see lots of examples of companies going so far as to say uh, you cannot talk about it. Um, whether or not that's legal, <laughs> it's a whole different ballgame. Um, frankly, in most cases, that's not something they can enforce, and it's certainly not something that they're supposed to tell you. But if you poll a thousand people about what their onboarding experience was like in a new job, a good portion of those will tell you that HR, you know, reinforced with them at some point not to share details about their offer or not to talk about salary with their peers. Definitely, that is the overwhelming sentiment, right? When you talk to people about compensation, it's not something that like we're sharing over the over a coffee together or that we're like hanging out at the park with our kids and talking about how much we made last week. It's just not a conversation that's comfortable for a lot of people. And unfortunately, for underrepresented groups, um, women included, we really suffer more because we don't have access to that data and because we are not comfortable talking about it as a, as a whole. Um, part of why I do this work at Recruit Her, and frankly, part of why my initial um, meeting with Gina was really awkward is that this happened to me. And, you know, I'm someone who 
who comes from an HR and recruiting background, you would think of all women, uh, you know, doing this kind of work that I would have better access to that information, that I would know a lot about my market worth and that I would never find myself in a situation where I was vastly underpaid. But that's totally what happened to me. And it was such a, uh, such a strange experience and it made me so angry. (laughs) <laughs> that it really pushed me to start talking about this more with my peers, with women I knew, with my family. Um, and I found that over time, no matter how many times I have this conversation with other women, the, the overwhelming um, response is the same. Like People are just really resistant to talk about salary. They feel like they're going to be punished if they do. They feel like it's rude. The conversation's uncomfortable, and so we sort of avoid it. And I think that's a, a big part of why often we go for five or 10 or 20 years vastly underpaid because there's not a single centralized location to just see the comp of your peers, right? In most cases, unless you're working for the government or a really awesome company that has salary transparency and more and more of those are doing that. Um, Buffer is a great example. You can go to the Buffer uh, website right now and look at their salary calculator and plug in what kind of job you want to do and where you live and they can give you an estimate on what you would make there. All of their employees' salaries are publicly available. Um, at Recruit Her, we made that commitment that when we started to hire employees that we would be transparent about our salaries and about their salaries and that's part of the deal. If you join us, you have to be comfortable with other people knowing how much you make. Um, so part of, you know, diversity in tech being a, you know, a national conversation is great because within this movement, you've also seen this really great leadership by women of color in tech who've pushed toward greater salary transparency. Probably the most common or the most well-known example is from a couple of years ago when Erica Baker, who was at Google, uh, you know, started pushing on this, realized there wasn't a lot of information about the salaries of her peers and started a spreadsheet that was, you know, being passed around. People were anonymously entering their compensation. Google got wind of this. Obviously, they were very pissed. Um, and ultimately, she left Google, is now at Slack, right? Yeah. Um, and a, which is a, a company we really love and, and feel like is doing a lot of great work around Um, some of these issues. But in any case, uh, it was a very public punishment, right? Like you got to kind of watch that play out. But thankfully, she was brave enough to start that conversation and start sharing that document because it really helped reinforce uh, this conversation around salary gaps, why certain people were paid more or less than their peers. It pushed other people to start similar salary trains um, my little baby one that's been passed around for a couple of months is specifically around HR and recruiting data. Um, I've been trying so hard to get more anonymous information on the way recruiters and HR managers are paid and people ops professionals because, again, you would think that someone embedded in this work, like you know, creating compensation plans, having access to salary information about all the employees in a company would know more about their own comp. But even, you know, within our very insular part of tech, um, there's still that, uh, that 
that idea that you shouldn't be talking about this stuff, right? Like that somehow this is bad that you're asking or you should just be happy you have a job or uh, just trust us that we're going to treat you fairly. We've seen, frankly, that that does not work. It's not a great method to protect yourself. And, you know, it's really sort of a sad irony that uh, women in particular end up sharing information about their salary with the people that it's least helpful to share it with, which is going to be a recruiter or a hiring manager prior to receiving a job offer. So that actually, because of the gender wage gap, ends up harming women because it sets in the mind of the potential employer a ballpark for what they're going to pay you. But if you've been historically underpaid, then you're not going to be receiving the salary that you're actually worth because you've revealed what that past pay history was before saying, well, what do you think that I'm worth doing this job? So it's so frustrating and sad to me because we really, you know, deserve it and owe to one another to share what our salaries are and to advocate with one another around these issues. But instead, we seem to only be saying it to the people who actually don't have our best interest in mind. I was just going to say, too, um, you know, often HR managers, corporate recruiters, most big companies will already have policies in place around how much, you know, based on percentage of a person's current salary, they can boost for this new offer, right? So, again, if you share this information about your current comp with a company that you'd really like to work for and you've been historically underpaid, whether you know it or you don't know it, you're already setting yourself up to stay underpaid if their rule is that they only do, you know, a 10% increase from your current comp for this offer. And I see all the time corporate HR, corporate recruiting professionals, you know, coming back to candidates with this answer like, hey, you know, we're not trying to treat you unfairly, but these are the rules. I would just strongly reject that it's one of the things that we teach candidates and coach candidates on often, like how to have these conversations without being seen as difficult or, you know, like you're hiding information. But like, really, this is a place where you have so much power in the process. Um, giving up those numbers just really sets you back. Again, even if you don't know if you're underpaid or how underpaid you might be, if you have an inkling, you just pass that power right across the table as soon as you tell them what you're making right now. They do not need that information in order to make you a competitive offer. So you're suggesting that the the power that you're referring to is your current compensation and that you should not disclose that to a potential employee employer? Ah. Yes, I would say absolutely not. If you can, in any capacity, avoid giving that information over, you will be in a much better position to negotiate. And frankly, it's probably the easiest way to keep yourself from continuing to be underpaid if you are already you know, part of that wage gap. I mean, if you look at Ashley's experience, within one job move, she more than doubled her salary. So if she had revealed how much that she was making prior, it would be a much harder pill for that new employer to swallow Mm -hmm. that they were going to more than double her prior salary, right? Man, but I mean, speaking of hard pills to swallow... You know, we you've already mentioned how it's almost culturally ingrained in women to be polite, be that model employee, not rock the boat, not make waves. I mean, my palms started sweating when you were like, (laughs) don't give up that information because I know what it feels like to be sitting 
in front of that online job application and seeing that cursor blinking in the little field where you're supposed to enter your current salary. And so what advice do you, you know, I don't want to steal your, your trade secrets that you guys do at Recruit Her, but, but what is some maybe advice or perspective that you can offer our listeners when it comes to circumventing not only that, but other potentially damaging aspects of the job interview or job application process? I think it all comes down to how you frame the conversation, right? Like how you go into these often very uncomfortable for us conversations around comp. Um, we can talk about like literally how do you move the cursor past the what's your current comp blank if it forces you to enter a number. But first, I would say the best thing that you can do for yourself if you are starting to interview is to make sure that you are prepared before you ever get on the phone with a recruiter um, with information about what market rates look like for the position you're interviewing for. Um, do as much research as you can around current comp for your peers, for what folks make in other industries if you're transitioning from one to another. Um, we're really lucky that the internet exists. Um, 50 years ago, this would be very difficult to do. Um, but again, thanks to people like Erica Baker um, and many who've come after her sort of doing the same push, there are lots of resources floating around where we're all sharing this information, right, and trying to get more visibility, not just for ourselves, but for our industries as a whole around like what market rate really looks like. There's also um, quite a few services that have popped up in the last couple of years Comparably is, um, I think, the newest one. They just got something like $6 million in VC funding. Um, and they're essentially building out this huge database, not unlike a glass door, um, to look specifically at compensation, what the full package uh, might look like for someone if they're going into interview. They're asking for anonymous feedback on this stuff so that their sample sizes will grow. Um, pay scale is another one. Again, you can look at companies who have already publicly um, shared salary information to get a feel for what people are making near you. Also, having conversations with recruiters um, about compensation in general. A lot of times, even if you're not super interested in the particular role, you should take those intro calls when they want to talk to you about them and just get competitive intelligence on you know, what companies are looking for, what the salary range is for a particular role being armed with that stuff before you go into the conversation with a recruiter about a position you really want is going to help you so much to be able to give, you know, data-based, totally logical, like numbers-oriented reasons why you want to be paid a specific amount of money or within a specific range for this work that you're going to be providing to them. Um, it's so much easier to go in armed with that. There is great information available about what works particularly for women in terms of how to approach a negotiation, especially a salary negotiation, in a way that's going to help avoid or minimize backlash for negotiating in the first place, right? As a society, we are just much more comfortable with men advocating on their own behalf than we are with women doing the same. Women are excellent negotiators. They can do a wonderful job as long as they're advocating for someone else most of the time, right? And partly this is because, you know, stereotypically we view women 
women as collaborative and caretaking. And so it makes sense for us when we think about a woman trying to advocate for someone else, negotiating on someone else's behalf. But when it's negotiating on her own behalf, then that's kind of off-putting to us. So um, there's a researcher out of Harvard. Her name is Hannah Riley Bowles, who's done a lot of great work on this. She talks about taking a relational approach to the conversation. So just like Ashley was saying, come in very prepared, know your numbers, make sure you know, you know, what the salary range is for the job in the specific area. If you're trying to negotiate a salary in San Francisco, those numbers are going to look really different than they would if you're trying to get a job in Austin for the same type of role. Um, and talk in terms of we, right? Already position yourselves as though you're on the same side of the table with a person that you're negotiating with. So you can essentially say, you know, I, you know, can't wait to come on and provide this particular set of skills and capabilities for your team. You know, we're going to do really well together. I, you know, I expect to basically put myself, you know, hard to work for your company. And at this rate, which I understand to be, you know, the going rate, I'm going to be really happy coming on and we're going to get started on the right foot, etc. I wish you had been in the room with me, both of you, when I had my first job offer because I didn't negotiate and I know I'm still paying for it. And uh, I, it's hard not to kick myself anytime I think about it. I'm right there with you. I spent so many years killing it, frankly. Like, I'm not shy. I'm really good at my job, but I was killing it. And I was the lowest paid person doing that particular type of work. And for a company that I loved, which is a wonderful, wonderful company with lots of great people in it. Um, and I just, I didn't know. I, I wasn't armed with that information. So I had no idea. And then once I found out, you know, it's just like, it guts you. It's really difficult to continue to kill it, um, knowing that you're being compensated at a rate, you know, less than half of your peers who may or may not be killing it themselves. So Ashley has told me this story a number of times. And I think it's great to highlight that one of her male coworkers came to her to share with her the fact that she was grossly underpaid. So this is such a great area for allyship, right? Like when we talk about the importance of sharing with one another, it's not just women sharing with other women, but frankly, our male coworkers and friends can talk to us about what they're making. And that makes a huge difference. Well, do you think that so-called radical transparency of wages, of benefits, of skills, the skills that you bring to the table, will that help disrupt any toxic office culture? Will it help in the gender wage gap as so many people are hoping? I think it certainly has the potential to. I mean, look at Salesforce, right? Um, They're an excellent example. Someone at some point the last couple of years came to them and said, hey, we think you have some issues with salary on your team. And, you know, their top exec said, no, absolutely not. We, we're a wonderful company. We care deeply for our employees. We're doing all this great work for them. We have all these great people who stay. Like, there's no way. And then they looked at the numbers anyway and were horrified that, yes, in fact, there was huge disparity when they looked across their salary ranges and their existing employees comp, and then they, you know, put three and a half million dollars into fixing it. And then they publicly talked about how, you know, how frustrating that process was to believe so strongly that you were doing the right thing. And that of course you were taking care of 
your folks. And then when you dig into the numbers to find that, you know, in, in many cases, they weren't. Um, now, they're a great example because, A, they looked at the numbers. B, they did something about it. And C, I think most importantly, they talked about it, right? Because that's that's part of the deal. If we don't talk about this stuff, if we can't get more transparency around the data that will let, allow us to make better decisions, it's never going to go away. And look, it's the same thing with the diversity in tech deal. If Tracy had never started collecting data around how many people worked in tech, how many women were on the team at Pinterest, um, there would never have been that like light bulb moment, right? About, oh God, this is worse than we thought. And then that pushed other companies to share and it's continuing to push the conversation. Um, so yes, I think absolutely having more salary transparency and there being a pressure for more companies to dig into this stuff has the capacity to really truly change the experience of people working in tech and other industries. So in the spirit of transparency, I'm going to share a little bit of a, a related issue that I have personally with this, and I've never known what to do about it. Um, so like I said, I never negotiated when I came on to my, my first professional job, and uh, I feel like I have been having to make up for that. But the last time I had to negotiate for my salary, I walked in knowing for a fact that I was paid less than my male coworkers doing arguably identical work. Uh-huh. And when I brought that up to the HR manager who I was negotiating with and said, listen, I know that I need an extra bump because you've got to even this out. And she said, I don't know how you know that information, but it is not applicable to this conversation. And became very hostile in her tone toward me as if knowing me knowing that and bringing it up was something that I shouldn't have. And I know I'm still not being paid equally. I know I make less. For a fact, I know I make less than my male coworkers who are at the exact same level, who have the exact same title. So what is someone in my position who's not at a sales force who doesn't have like a company initiative for sales uh, for salary transparency? What do all, all of the women listening to this in my position do? Uh, Kristen, that is heartbreaking. I'm so sorry to hear you're dealing with that, and uh, it's so frustrating. And I know that plenty of other people have been in your same position. Um, I think it it helps to just sort of help. It helps to remind and teach people that while there are amazing folks who work in HR and who want to help the people on their team and advocate for them as much as possible, there are also just at the end of the day things that they cannot help you with or their hands are tied because ultimately HR works for the company, right? Like HR, yes, 
often is wonderful and wants to help you. But at the end of the day, their role is to protect the business. So there is there are going to be situations um, like this really unfortunate one that you find yourself in where you go to the person who you've been told is supposed to help you in this situation and they're kind of telling you, I, I don't want to be hearing this, you know, like this isn't something that we want to address. Well, and the funny thing was at the end of the whole process, because we did go back and forth on some things, uh, she, she emailed me with like the final terms and all of that and, and noted you know, you are a tough negotiator. <laughs> oh. And I Oh wow. I, I just didn't know what what to think about it. And honestly, I've kind of just put it in the back of my head ever since because you know, what does someone in this position do now? Do you walk into your boss's office and say, Hey, I want I wanna know. <laughs> you know, how much more you owe me. Like, because you know that's not probably not going to work. Yeah. And this is so tricky. I think, too, like, really speaks to how difficult these problems are once they surface, like, deciding how you're going to move forward. Um, again, I had very similar experience to you. I was working for a company I loved and then, you know, got pulled aside to find out that I was not just underpaid, but, like, really, really, really underpaid, like, more than half, um, and then to have to decide how to move forward. I think in my case, um, I, I recognize my privilege in that I could take some time, start interviewing at other places. Like now that I was armed with this information on my real market worth, right? I could start digging in with other people and, and get that validated. I could do more research. And, you know, everyone knows that when you change jobs, when you're you know, able to negotiate for a new salary at a new company, usually that's your best bet to get the most money. You're generally going to get way more money when you're negotiating for an offer at a new company than you will be able to internally at your, at your company. And some of that is based on what we talked about before. Like a lot of corporations will already have rules in place around what percentage of your current comp they can increase um, in some cases, unfortunately, also there are compensation buckets. So like, let's say your manager has five direct reports. They may only have X amount of dollars to divvy up between those five direct reports in a given quarter or a given year. And so even if you're doing phenomenally and you're $30,000 underpaid, your manager may feel obligated to still split that bucket in a way that is not fair to you, but they believe is fair to those five people, right? So um, you, there are all these intricacies that you have to take into consideration when you look at what possibly could happen if you push back again, right? If you go back um, past the HR conversation that was already so scary and terrible to have um, and really demand that you're paid market rate and like escalate this issue um, because you could totally be punished even though you shouldn't be, and the law says that your employer cannot punish you for, you know, that there cannot be retaliation, that you can't lose your job because you push back about salary. We all know that that's not realistic in many cases, right? Um, and frankly, not everyone can afford to go against the man, um, file an EEOC complaint, or get an employment attorney to file a lawsuit for you about your wrongful termination. Um, and then wait however many months or years it takes to get 
some sort of resolution on that, right? Some people don't have the luxury to sit out for that many months or years. Um, and so it really comes down to like what your risk tolerance is, um, what, what is best for you right now um, when you look at your budget, when you look at the amount of time you have to maybe be out of a job if this thing goes south. Um, and it sucks. It's totally not fair to you um, that you even have to consider these factors. But, you know, the truth for many women, many people in general in this country is that they live paycheck to paycheck or they have um, family members that they care for who are dependent on their income. And if they have conversations or do things that might jeopardize the stability of that income, um, there's some really real consequences they have to consider. We don't all have the luxury of being able to storm in and say, like, this is super terrible. <laughs> this, what you're doing is not right. I've yeah. already asked, you know, in the way that I, you know, I've already asked politely if that's what you've done. <laughs> and frankly, you're still screwing me over. Like, that's the conversation we want to have. But many of us are just not uh, in a position to be able to do that. And so, unfortunately, I think in a lot of these cases, getting that information that you're now armed with, building it up, right? Supporting it with even more documentation and information about your market worth and starting to research employers who have more inclusive practices and who are gonna be a better fit for you over time and really value you and support you and pay you what you're worth. That might be your happy ending, but I yeah, know I mean, that that's not the simple answer for everyone. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, sort of time-tested way that many people approach this problem is they just go out and get another offer, right? And then bring it to their current employer and say, hey, uh, I have this really appealing offer at this other company. Can you match it? Uh, and like we talked about before, for women who negotiate, we always have to keep in mind that there is this backlash about women negotiating on their own behalf. So if you take this approach and you do go out and interview elsewhere and get a really great competitive offer, but you like your job and you would rather stay, then when you go present that to your current boss, you have to present it in a way that's basically like, look, I was contacted by this other company. I felt like I owed it to myself to just, you know, have the conversation with them. They have made me this very competitive offer, but I love being here. This is where I want to stay. You know, I love the contribution that I'm making on this team. I don't want to have to go there, but given, you know, the market rates, this is a very difficult offer for me to turn down. Is there any way that you could meet it so that I could stick around here and, you know, continue making contributions here? This is where I want to be if you can just match this salary offer. So that might be another way to kind of get around it if like, hey, just pay us fairly isn't really getting you where you want to be. Do you think getting dinged for having, and of course getting dinged is like massively understating the issue, <laughs> but uh, do you think getting dinged for having those negotiation conversations, uh, like having the kind of conversation that Kristen did, uh, do you think the penalties are higher if you're a woman of color? Oh, must be. Oh, I yes. Mean, can you imagine if, if I'm a black woman going in there, like they, I walk right into that angry black woman stereotype. So absolutely, right? You have to deal with many more of those challenges when you have multiple aspects of your identity that are marginalized. So I do think it's really fascinating how a lot of this so-called radical transparency is taking off 
in Silicon Valley and with digital companies that at the same time have so many public issues with gender and diversity. So why do you think that this is really where a lot of this conversation is stemming from? Like why the tech industry? I think the tech industry really prides itself on being innovative and forward thinking. So they're much more comfortable with and likely to try new things. And I think that's one of the aspects that makes working on this problem within this industry so exciting and gives me the hopeful things because uh, there's a lot to be d- depressed and frustrated about every day. Um, but, you know, you look at Etsy or Netflix or any of these larger, more successful tech companies coming out and announcing fantastic benefits. For example, Netflix will give you up to a year of paid leave for per- parents, right, of any gender. Um, that's fantastic. In a country that is alone with Papua New Guinea and not offering paid maternity leave, that's huge, right? So those kind of um, offerings where the tech industry is trying to push the edge, which is something that basically everyone prides themselves on, um, is really great for us. And at the same time, within particular companies, you know, it really sort of depends on the culture and what the real message and commitment is from the top. Some of those companies are just kind of trying to check the box off, right? Like this isn't a problem they really want to spend a lot of time on, but they feel the pressure that they need to address it. So they'll say, oh yeah, you know, let's implement the Rooney rule and make sure that we at least interview a minority for every open role. Um, Check that box, you know, we'll do some of these initiatives, but there's not a core commitment to the addressing the problem. Whereas at other companies, and in tech in particular, you know, our clients we're really proud of, um, have a deep commitment to these issues and are trying to do comprehensive reforms and initiatives to make sure that they are creating a truly equitable and inclusive place to work. And in both cases, the policies are great, but the overall outcome is going to be different depending on the specific company. So to circle back to the parental leave issue, for example, if it's all great and wonderful if you have, you know, unlimited vacation or up to a year parental leave, but what's the kind of unspoken messaging, right? Like, is there a common knowledge at the company that if you're a dad and you take your full 10 weeks of paid leave, that that's career suicide, even though it's on the books as the policy, right? So it, it definitely always has kind of a drill down, like what's really going on at the particular company where you are, regardless of what the, the written policy might be. And I really like that, you know, for all the flack that the millennials get, you know, we're doing some really great stuff. I mean, I feel like we are leading the charge in terms of revolutionizing the workplace culture. And this is one example of it. Sadly, it is a story that we hear over and over and over and over and over again. So it's personal and it's terrifying for you to talk about it, but it's really powerful that you're doing that because it allows other people to realize they're not the only ones having that experience and that it is not normal. Well, and part of why I don't usually talk about it is because it's also embarrassing. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Hey, man, I, I feel like... Again, I of all people, I should have known. How did I live like that many years underpaid when I'm supposed to be the expert at that in my field? 
uh, it is embarrassing. It sucks. It's like financial literacy. I should have known all that stuff, but sometimes it takes someone pulling you aside and, you know, giving you the tip before you figure it all out. And I, I think that's a big aspect of this conversation that's going on because, Kristen, you say it's embarrassing, but it's almost a trap. I see General Akbar in my head yelling it's a trap because at on the one hand, we are supposed to be responsible for negotiating in a way that nabs us the most money. But on the other hand, we're not empowered in a lot of ways to either know what the industry standard is or to even think to research what the industry standard is. And then certainly with if you're dealing with a hostile HR person or a hostile manager, you're certainly not empowered to be able to ask for more money or even ask about what coworkers are being paid on average. And so like, yes, well, I totally agree that it is embarrassing to realize like, oh, I've contributed to being underpaid. It's such a trap. Well, and hostility aside, it's all of the unconscious biases that you as a woman, a woman of color, like whatever your layers of identity are, um, as you two were talking about at the beginning of our conversation, where it's impossible for us to have a completely objective negotiation process. And I do realize, of course, that it's Admiral Akbar. My apologies. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get some mad Star Wars uh, fans. That's going to be the only fast. feedback we get. I know. <laughs> um, I was just going to say, yeah, and, you know, on these topics, I mean, I will say I have a lot of mixed feelings about the Sheryl Sandberg lean-in ethos. Um, and definitely it is empowering for women to go out and get this information and learn specific strategies for how to negotiate on their own, own behalf. Reading that book, Why Women Don't Ask, or Women Don't Ask, is really great. Um, you know, like, it's a really good book. It's very informative. It helped me in my personal negotiations. And then at the same time, in our work, Ashley and I are constantly trying to also come at it from the company angle and encouraging companies to not contribute to a situation where constantly individual employees are basically just out there trying to battle it on their own for getting paid what they're worth. This is why we advocate having this salary transparency as a company policy. Um, you know, we can help one another as employees by starting these conversations and talking to each other about what we make and, you know, giving each other a hand up to a greater path to wealth and to being paid what we're worth. So I, on the one hand, yes, you know, like there's so much that you can do on your own as an individual, um, learn more about ways to approach these issues. And on the other hand, it's going to take a big group effort. It's going to take us supporting one another. It's going to take companies evolving their culture and practices to be more equitable and fair. Well, I think that's the perfect note to end on. Um, <laughs> Gina and Ashley, thank you so much for talking to us. Also, even before that, Gina, thank you for messaging Caroline and me before <laughs> South by Southwest. Yes. Listeners, yes, that's all how this like went that. down. Um, and can you let our listeners know how they can find out more about you and, and what Recruit Her is all about and what you all are doing? Sure. You can visit our website at recruither.io. 
And that has all of the information about how you can connect with us. We have an email newsletter you can sign up for. If you're looking for a job or you just want to know what's out there, you can register and give us your resume and we'll see if we have something that matches you with one of the tech companies that's our clients. We also offer career coaching through our amazing executive and career coach, Ariane Hunter. Um, there are a variety of options of packages available for that. So look us up online. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. What's your Twitter handle? Well, there's Recruit Her uh, for the business Twitter. And then I'm Gina Helferick. No space is just all one word. Um, and Ashley's Ashley underscore Doyle, D-O-Y-A-L. Thank you so much to Gina Helfrick and Ashley Doyle, the founders of Recruit Her, for talking to Caroline and me, not only on the podcast, but also at South by Southwest. It has been so great to build this relationship in such a quick time um, with these women who have so many insights on these issues. I feel like, Caroline, we hear a lot about in terms of women, you need to negotiate more and know your worth, but... They're really offering these sharper tools for actually making those kinds of things happen. Yeah, maybe we should start our own Google Doc for all Sminty listeners, and you can just go in and put your job title, like your salary and your hourly wage, and we can all look and see what other what do other feminist podcasters make what what do other writers and waitresses and actresses make well and we'd also have to make sure that we get some dudes to plop their salaries in there so that we can really compare and see how much we're really making or not um but i'm sure that listeners have so many thoughts about our conversation with Gina and Ashley. Um, so first, if you want to learn more about them, you can head over to their website. Again, it's recruither.io. Um, and you can also, listeners, send us your letters about all of this. Have you encountered any of these issues in your workplace? Have you ever done the thing of asking your coworkers how much they make? How did you do that? How did your boss respond? Yes, I'm asking for tips. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Okay, I have a letter here from Christine Selinger, and I would not normally read off a listener's full name in the listener mail segment, but we actually mentioned and cited Christine in our episode on disability and sexuality. So here's what Christine had to say. A friend recently told me that you quoted me in a podcast, so I wanted to go back and check it out. Thanks for doing that. It's really great, and you managed to cover a lot in that quick hour. A couple of things I wanted to hit on. Number one, the word suffered. You described me as someone who suffered a spinal cord injury, and this is a word I generally try to avoid. Instead, I use the phrase, I sustained my spinal cord injury. The reason for this is that suffering carries a lot of negative connotations, the image of a person who you should pity, and is really just not true for me, as with many other people with disabilities. As you sort of hit on in your podcast, disability is still seen as being bad or lesser, so there's an assumption that having a disability makes you suffer. But for many of us, that isn't true. We each live with our disabilities. They're a part of us and a part of our normal. 
number two, actors. Near the end of your podcast, you talk about seeing more people with disabilities in media, and though that's great, I find it to be such a shame that they are most often portrayed by people who don't actually have that disability. It may be understandable when talking about a movie or TV show where the character is depicted both with and without their disabilities, such as The Theory of Everything, but I don't believe it's right or okay for films like Avatar or television shows like Glee to use actors that don't have that disability. Just as we don't see actors in blackface anymore, we shouldn't be seeing actors pretending to have disabilities. I'd also love to see disability in media normalized so that we see even extras as people with disabilities and not always a central character who's fighting against their disability in some way. Anyway, thanks again so much. I really believe that the more people know, the more accepting society will become. And thank you so much, Christine. We appreciate your letter. And I've got a letter here from Meredith about the same podcast episode. And she writes, I was so excited to see a podcast addressing sexuality and disability as being an occupational therapist. This is something I address frequently with my patients. However, I was disappointed that there wasn't a single mention of occupational therapy and the services they offer to help people learn and manage their sexuality after an injury. We were instead clustered into therapy services that do not address this in rehab. Occupational therapy is a frequently misunderstood part of the treatment team. We address daily functions and occupations like activities of daily living of people of any age, ability, and diagnosis. And this can be getting dressed, driving, money management, and even sex. I've attached a link below to our national organization addressing the role of occupational therapy in sexuality and just thought you should know. So listeners, that address is over at AOTA.org if you want to learn more about occupational therapy. And Meredith, thank you so much for shining a light on that important work that you do. And now listeners, we want to hear from you as always. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about salary transparency and recruit her, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 